Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Hinge Points. I'm Danny Bessner, here as always with Matt Chrisman. Uh, and in this episode, we're going to go over probably the most important hinge point in our life, or at least one of one of the top three, along with the 2008 financial crisis and maybe the actual invasion of Iraq. Uh, and of course, that means we're going to be talking about 9-11, 9-11, 9-11, the thing that transformed the future of American foreign policy, and even to some degree transformed how we understood the past of foreign policy. And so everyone knows the basic story of 9-11, or at least we think we know. Uh, There's a lot of unanswered questions about what exactly happened on the day itself. But, you know, for the purposes of this podcast, we're going to assume that 9-11 happened roughly as the official story went. Two planes flew into buildings and the American National Security State responded with uh, 20 years of war and a counterterrorism apparatus that still defines how the United States uh, acts in the world. So, uh, Matt, why do you think 9-11 was such an important hinge point? And then I'll give a bit of background on what was going on before. So when 9-11 happens, you have America, the American colossus that had inherited the world as a unipolar hegemon after the fall of the Soviet Union at a cliche to say it, but accurate crossroads. Because uh, while in the immediate aftermath of the fall of the Soviet Union, George Bush had created his little Potemkin war in the Middle East as a, as a display of American military prowess and as a renewal of America's military-focused uh, foreign policy. The next eight years after Clinton took office are really adrift. There is this grasping for a, a raison d'etre for the American military state. Uh, and the closest anyone can come up with are these peripheral police actions that are meant to enforce America's role as global policemen. I mean, the reason everyone kept squawking insistently for that whole decade that we weren't going to be America's policemen and warning everybody else that we aren't going to do that is because that's all we were doing. That was the future of American empire. And that was not politically viable in the long term. America was already sick of it and it had barely cost them anything. This continued orientation of the military state was just not sustainable. Some new enemy had to emerge. One of the things that really jumps out to me about that is when you think about the cultural products of the late 1990s and the sort of intellectual exhaustion they represented. You have things like uh, Saving Private Ryan. You have right before 9-11, actually two days before 9-11, I believe, Band of Brothers debuts. So you have this you know, um, portrayal, this baby boomer portrayal of these movies sort of hearkening back to the moment when America had a purpose. So you have, on one hand, you have the nostalgia of boomers like uh, Steven Spielberg and, and Tom Hanks, people who, you know, grew up with a certain idea about what the United States should do in the world, and they reflect it in these movies. And on the other hand, you have what I would call the Gen X response to that in movies like Office Space and Fight Club, which essentially are just about intellectual exhaustion and the fact that there's no meaning in the world. And so I think in some sense, the 90s could be defined as a crisis of American meaning. And what 9-11 does is it gives that meaning that was otherwise absent. Right. So it orients our culture and our politics around this new enemy. And the confrontation of this enemy has to take the form of a military confrontation. And that means that you have the possibility here, opening with 9-11, with the trauma of that, to create a situation where the United States, instead of being the policeman of a global capitalist order that was slowly decentering American interests. Like, that's the important thing to realize is that all of America, to some degree or another, recognized in the 80s the creeping irrelevance of American power in the global world. That what we would prefer to happen is no longer going to be guaranteed by the market because the market has now transcended a parochial American interest. It is now truly a global economic structure. America can now be one country of others deciding what to do with all these resources. And in that context, uh, the... uh, the, the overwhelming amount of power wielded by the United States, accounting for 5% of the world population, would eventually kind of uh, have to be corrected for. And so there is, I think, every at, at the highest levels of power more than anywhere, an acute awareness that something had to be done to reassert the primacy of America as headquarters of global capitalism. And that meant taking this military state that had been built up over the last half century, this unprecedented military machine that had outspent the Soviet Union into collapse and now dominated the globe to instead of being the police officer, the night watchman 
that the libertarians imagine is the sole role of the state. What if we turned our invisible empire into a physical, real, militarily enforced, geographically defined empire and use that military power not only is to generate our economic activity, but also orient all of our politics and culture to ensure that like the global fight for capitalism will be this desperate scramble for resources that America will use its force to win. But all that is, you can see the path. Like This is the only way America gets out of this terminal decline towards the reality of a multipolar world. And this is the moment where everybody at the top of the bottom hole in the American state is fully committed to resisting that decline. But there is no reason to. The, the American public is asking all these questions about meaning, and they're looking inward, and they're looking at a social order that gives them no sense of meaning, that does not allow them any ability to have meaning, because it doesn't allow them autonomy. They cannot make their own lives. Their lives are made by the market. They can make their lives in the pseudo-realm of a consumption identity fantasy. And that is and immediately became wildly alienating, even as people uh, had still an assumption in that 90s glow that economically there would be a certain uh, assumed standard of living. But is that enough? And the answer was no. 9-11 emerges at the precise moment to just break the entire American mindscape away from the self and towards the other and to orient all of their political concerns, all of their questions about uh, what the, the state should be doing around the question of defending us instead of serving us. And I think a way to think about that is that 9-11 solves what can be usefully understood as a crisis of liberalism. Because the basic premise of liberalism as it's initially instantiated in the 19th century and develops over the course of the 20th century is that you're going to have increasing um, authority, increasing autonomy over your own life. But what happened over the course of the uh, second half of the 20th century is that Capitalism won. This this element that emerges from liberalism and, and shapes liberalism in in various ways totally won. And in its total victory with the you know destruction of the left wing that we talked about uh, in an earlier episode, with its total victory of uh, uh, the total victory of capitalism, you have this uh, endemic crisis of liberalism. Because let's say let's take Fight Club, where Edward Norton's character doesn't have autonomy at work, right? And so it has the focus of the tyranny of worker office space, which is essentially the exact same plot is that these, you know, the subject of history, these white male Americans feel like they don't have autonomy. And so you have a gestating and genuine crisis of liberalism, which, you know, was also happening in the 1930s and 1940s. And it was cut off by World War II and the Cold War back then. And in uh, post 9-11, that crisis of liberalism was at least cut off for, for 15 years. I think the big difference between the 30s and the 40s is that Nazism, you know, one could read as a genuine existential threat, at least to certain ideas ideas of what the United States wanted itself to be in the world. The Soviet Union, I think, less legitimately, but, you know, it was a great power with a lot of nuclear weapons. You know, it's not totally crazy to see it as an existential threat, even though I thought it was. But Islamic terrorism just wasn't in any meaningful way. So you have, unlike in the Cold War, which really did cut off the left and cut off the crisis of liberalism, you have um, the return to it, in, in uh, particularly the election of Donald Trump, but also the ascent of Bernie Sanders which are both offering two different solutions uh, to the crisis of liberalism and the crisis of American uh, autonomy. And so 9-11 is, is what I mean to say. It's interesting because it, it is a genuine hinge point, but the problem is the structures as they exist today aren't able to offer that sort of alternative that they were in the 30s and the 40s. Yes, and we are in the wake of, of these events now because there is no working class based counter hegemonic structures that can uh, uh, see an event like 9-11 or, or anything that happens afterwards and use it to advance their own independent agenda. Instead, the the agenda of capitalism broadly defined is then manifested through its cultural uh, structures and then absorbed by a public that is at this point so cut off from the self-conception of one as a worker or a member of a class and so oriented around the idea of one as a consumer and an expression of identity through consumption. All they could do is attach one way or another to this new grand narrative that they could only observe and not really do anything about other than take all of the anxiety 
and alienation that comes from having no control in this situation and venting it towards some other that they want to see destroyed. And for a little bit in that the post 9-11 glow, there was really national unity. And when people say that, what they're forgetting to add is that it was national unity against an other. And it was all oriented around defining this new enemy that had emerged out of nowhere, really, because no one really was paying attention, and now challenged our very ability to live, our ability to survive as individuals and as a society. And that is where our unity came from. And that was the bipartisan consensus, because that was the state's preferred response that we have in that moment, which is to look outward, to find an enemy, and then give the planners the clear runway to enact what I think otherwise would be a highly objectionable agenda, which is, hey, let's not make a peace dividend and give people universal health care and things like that. Let's instead level the Middle East and become its new uh, lords on earth. People would say no, uh, absent 9-11. So it fulfills every demand. And it's a hinge point because it's so hard to imagine. Let's say 9-11 doesn't happen. Somebody decides to frisk Muhammad Atta or somebody else gets arrested and some local cop who's not in on it is like trips the alarm. And there's a bunch of ways 9-11 couldn't have happened. I don't know if you could get away with there not being some massive attempt, you know, in the early aughts. But if it's not successful, if you don't have the spectacular collapse of the towers, I am really at a loss to figure how the hell can America's rulers manage that process because it would be decline in every respect of American power. And all the cultural products were very clear about that, particularly for young men. And I think that's also really crucial to understanding what's going on. So this is, of course, the first hinge point that you and I were alive for. Uh, and we were, you know, young men consuming Office Space, South Park, Fight Club, all, all of those movies were probably movies that uh, you loved. I certainly did at the time. So I was curious, um, and thinking about hinge points, maybe uh, going down a little bit from the macro, political, and economic level, was this a hinge point in your life? Did 9-11 change how you understood things as a young man growing up in uh, Wisconsin? It's hard to... I mean, it's... Those things come into your life and, and you just... It's so hard to think of a world without them that it's hard to really weigh what it's responsible for. I think it definitely shaped me. I think it pulled me inward in a way and I think it definitely broke off my horizons. Like, I was already kind of, at that point, a recently traumatized kid, you know, going to college and all that. But, man, that really didn't help. <laughs> and I do feel like there is a turn inward that then manifested itself by people seeking escape, either in political fantasies of violence that they could vicariously enjoy or theaters of distraction that ended up consuming a whole generation. For me, it was really interesting because I was in New York. I was from New York, and then I wound up going to college in New York. And 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 and, and to, to be honest, it did feel like it gave some direction to my life. Like it, it did feel in those first years. I was uh, sixteen when nine eleven happened, and I was in college seventeen, eighteen, nineteen. It did feel like there was a genuine mission in the world uh, that that was analogous in meaningful ways to the mission of World War II. And I think, in some sense, I don't know um, if you feel the same way, but like consuming all of those late 90s cultural products, particularly Saving Private Ryan and Band of Brothers, really got me pumped up on the idea of American hegemony and American power. And with 9-11, it did seem like there was a way to meaningfully orient oneself in the world. So for example, in my senior year of college, I interned at the Council on Foreign Relations, and then I went into studying American foreign policy. So it, it, for me, at least, it was a hinge point in my life by presenting you know, the world as something that could be be manipulated in a meaningful way by like actors who act in the world. And I think one of the important things for me was the disillusionment with that sort of agentive centered, agent-centered approach to historical transformation. And it really made it clear to me that it's, you know, there are people involved, but, you know, equally and in many instances, more important structures shaping the possibilities of action. And I think one of the reasons, and I'm very curious to see what you think about this, for the rise of millennial Marxism was the very clear indications of first nine, the response to the September 11, 2001 attacks, and then also the uh, the Great Recession of 08, 09, 
09, it made very clear that there are large structures that shape everything in our lives, which is very different from the culture that we were raised on in the 80s and the 90s, sort of the Reagan era, the the end of history era, which really put forward an agent-centered image of history, which was disproven by everything that happened after 9-11. Yeah, I think for me, I didn't have the disillusionment because by that point, I was pretty convinced that any project that came out of 9-11 would be terrible. I, I, I took for granted that every response was wrong and, and awful and violent. And, and I mean, obviously, I, was, I didn't think about it too much because why would anyone even argue with you about it? But I kind of took for granted, yeah, Afghanistan, probably have to go into Afghanistan, even though now we know that's absolutely untrue. Uh, but very quickly, the Iraq thing, curdled any association I had with the 9-11 project as being in any way redeemable. Uh, but I had no countervailing idea of a good thing that those people in power could have imagined you could do, you know? So it, I think, broke me away from feeling a sense of empowerment in my own life because everything just felt so out of control. I did invest myself deeply in beating Bush in 2004, of course, just as a spectator. But that's how I adapted to this. That's how I coped. I was radically alienated from this order, but I was also relatively materially comfortable in it. So I just decided to really pay attention really hard. And so in that respect, yes, uh, my destiny was shaped by it because it was the horror of the Iraq war and the lies leading up to it that turned me into this like politically identified person, even if it was just as a consumer of news and opinion. And that gets us into the really interesting question of the internet, because, you know, the Gulf War is famously the war of the 24-hour news cycle. You know, CNN, it really gives rise to CNN in a legitimate way. But 9-11 is, I would say, the first genuinely internet driven or at least internet consumed war where you have these networks of people with you know fast wi-fi relatively speaking well it's not wi-fi i guess at that point it was uh it was tethered fast ethernet cables consuming this news event in real time and and one of the, probably my two biggest memories of 9-11 besides the immediately hearing about it was the onion you know the the famous onion pieces that came out about world is now bad jerry bruckheimer movie and then the also woman doesn't know what to do so she bakes flag-shaped american cake so i i also think it's important for foreshadowing the types of collective experiences that we would be having for the next 20 years, particularly in relation to politics, where we are consuming this news, we feel a simulacrum of connection and agency like you did with uh, the John Kerry campaign, but we're not actually shaping politics in any meaningful way. And I think that's where we find ourselves in terms of American democracy. And I, I want to hear you speak to the role of the internet, but I think 9-11 also suggested very important things about American democracy itself. Well, because these things happen almost simultaneously, the emergence of a, a World Wide Web and 9-11, you have both the creation of this new heightened degree of social interconnectivity and also the cultural language that it's going to speak. So at the same time, you get the ability to communicate uh, across the United States instantaneously, you also get the war on terror and its logic as the predominating discourse and uh, heuristic for the universe that you're, for the world that you're now going to be interacting with. So the world you're now creating through this internet discourse is this trauma ravaged maniac brain that is fixated wildly irrationally on a existential threat. This does not exist because rationally nine 11 happens. It's like that sucks. Not a big deal. There's a 9-11s where the people die in a COVID right now every two days, and it's bad, but it's something we can handle. It's something that can be managed not from a position of civilizational conflict and military conflagration, from a bureaucratic management position, something that cannot be emotionally invested in. But instead, even though it ended up being an isolated incident uh, and every terror attack that happened after that, coincidentally turned out to be an entrapment plot by the FBI, which really does raise questions about how the one big one wasn't the single big one that worked, but every other subsequent one, no, that those ones are, weren't real, but that one, we swear to God, that was real. So our priorities, our understanding of the world and, and our politics and our countrymen was completely distorted. And so the next 20 years is politically a search for another to defeat. 
And first for a while there, it was uh, oh, Bin Laden and the terrorists. But once they receded from our grasp after we ground uh, our uh, imperial machinery ground to a halt in uh, Mesopotamia, that it turned inward. And we have been ever since then, ever since Obama, really, on a, a cultural search for the enemy to destroy. But now it's us because our dream of the imperial domination has died in the desert and someone has to be responsible for it. So this to me indicates and a, a lot well let's just say a lot of people have noted that a, a language of trauma defines internet communication and that everyone is variously trauma traumatized in different ways and everyone needs to be aware of each other's traumas at all moments particularly on the political left and particularly probably people under 40 45 I, I don't think 65 or 70 year olds are thinking in this way which suggests to me that the fact that when we were all coming online literally as people and also literally on the internet we're we're dealing with this traumatic moment and the language of national trauma, particularly after 9-11, the three, four years between 2001 and, and let's say 2005, the language of national trauma really permeated the everything that everyone discussed. And I wonder if that's meaningfully connected to the way that people actually interact of our generation on the internet. This, you know, I, nebulous identification of traumas where to be alive is to be traumatized, which was very much the language of what it was to be an American in the years after 9-11. To be an American was to be totally traumatized, even if you lived, you know, in the middle of Iowa and have no organic connection to 9-11, right? And so I'm wondering, I had never thought about this before, but I'm wondering if there's actually a profound connection between these things that, you know, that Max Weber would have said had an elective affinity with one another. I think that's absolutely, I mean, it's facile probably, but I, I just, it resonates so hard because that fact that everything is traumatizing, that should be liberation. Because if everything is traumatizing, then you have to uh, work through it and move on. And you have to be in the world with an understanding that you are traumatized, not a constant terror of being traumatized because that's irrational because life is being traumatized. And instead of that as the assumption, the assumptive logic of, of, of the, uh, all, the, uh, all the issues people talk about are done by the government and the government is doing the war on terror. But more than anything else, of course, it's also deregulating the, uh, the uh, real estate economy and uh, guaranteeing the, the destruction of the economy. But nobody's noticing that. That's, of course, all off the table. That's not, that's not done by the state as embodiment of popular will. It's done by the state as an administrative bureaucracy. So it's just happening, churning in the background, the destiny of the country being decided. And we're in this existential battle where the next trauma will destroy us. Like that was the first and the next will be the end of us. And that echoes through every interaction we ha have. It, like the language of I have to avoid this trauma at every level is because you think it's going to be the trauma that breaks you because that's, that's the logic of terror that was imposed after 9-11. And you see it very materially with the creation of things like the color coding, the see something, say something, right? The life was presented to you as basically being a split second away from total disaster. And that must shape have shaped the way that we very much approach the world. And I honestly think that you would not have quite as indelible a paranoia uh, in setting the stage for 21st century politics and culture without the anthrax letters. Because that, for the people who were able to keep it in perspective, have like, well, it's one building, it's four planes, that would suck, but I could get hit by a car. The fucking anthrax in the mail, in the air, did make it a more reasonable fear that they might actually get you, even if you lived in Bumblefuck. Uh, and the, uh, just as a parenthetical, the fact that that goddamn anthrax was milled at Fort Detrick fucking Maryland, and we still don't know who sent it, Mm, you really think that, like, even if 9-11 was just, oh, these uh, mad Arabs did this and we just missed all those clues. Oops. Even if that's true, uh, the fucking anthrax, maybe it's, hey, we better gild the lily here to make sure that we don't miss this moment. Because we'll put a boot in your ass. It's the American way. Hey, Uncle Sam, put your name at the top of his list and a statue of a started shaking her fist and the eagle will so do you think it's a hinge point for the deep state i think it's the point where the deep state becomes uh algorithmic like it, 
the the the, the neoliberal turn is the turn towards the final uh, algorithmic completion of neoliberal uh, decision making. Uh, the Skynet turning on, put it glibly. Like, uh, once you have sufficiently abstracted economics decisions from popular will in the most important country, which is what happened in the late 70s in the United States, then in a real way, a zone of political power of human autonomy has been removed. You can no longer from popular outside for the, the popular forces that ha we have and that we exist within and that we know exist we cannot use them to change an outcome now at a deep level. Like we're stirring the ship here. Like we're stirring the ship towards planetary apocalypse, basically, because we are not going to try to negotiate some sort of multilateral world where power is distributed more evenly and, and resources are go from production to need as opposed to profit. You can't have that. So you're just going to not by your own desire as people. Even at the highest level, you have set a course for destruction that all subsequent people now have to deal with, but they're dealing with it with reduced political tools and reduced bureaucratic tools as computing power does a lot of the thinking work in the administrative state. It's being turned into an algorithm. It's being put more and more onto uh, the cloud to the point where by the time you have a bunch of uh, pissed off Muslims, quote unquote, planning their terror attack with the explicit aid and direction of the Saudi state, which is an American partner in a general project of undercutting secular and left-wing Arab nationalism in favor of Saudi-directed Islamism, they have a state interest in seeing this attack succeed to complete their identification with you know, the project of resisting, in the Middle East, the imposition of capitalism. And it's, it's the redirection of that anger and alienation and terror of uh, being subsumed. And that means somebody's got to get blown up in America. And that means the Saudi state has an interest in seeing it blown up. And that means the American state has an interest in seeing it blown up because, as we said, without an event like this, they're fucked. Like, how are we supposed to deal with a real... It's not going to be no 9-11, we have flowers and ponies. No, you're still going to have economic crashes and depressions and real shit happen because of the redistribution of resources through the system of capitalism, the, the reduction of America's role as this preeminent country into one of many within a capitalist organism. And that's going to be traumatic, and it's going to be violent, but it also might overthrow the established political order. So it could not have been allowed to happen. So at every level within the state, once you find out there's this plot to blow up the World Trade Centers, instead of doing what you could to end it, which ability you have, you do whatever you can to make sure it happens. So you have the system essentially doing a conspiracy theory that is then carried out by minions within the political order and in the bureaucratic state who simply have no other choice but to do it. Because if they don't, They'll just get fired, and they'll be replaced by somebody who will do it because the system at this point is producing people who are willing to do inhuman things. And the, what's really interesting about that analysis is how focused it is on structure, which gets back to, I think, my larger point, which is that 9-11 is a, a real hinge point for shaping how people around our age approach literal history and historical causation where agents don't seem as powerful as they might have appeared in previous moments of history where it seemed like we had control over the system. You know, Marx eventually, you know, one of his one of his many uh, write-on predictions was that at some point we would be so alienated from the systems that humanity had created would, is that they would drive history. And I think what 9-11 did was it suggested to many people that that was true, particularly younger people who lived through it. And so that suggests that 9-11 was another form of hinge point. I, I think you're right, as you gestured to in your answer, that the big hinge point for the economy and neoliberalism is really the 70s. That That's when the algorithm begins to become conscious of itself and these you know systems start operating in the political economy, the international political economy, um, outside of human agency in, a, I think, a meaningful way. Capitalism becomes genuinely global in the 1970s, I, I think, in a, in a way that's unique in world history. But when we're thinking about politics, 9-11 uh, 
Donovan is particularly interesting because basically the deal that the American state and the agents within it made with the American public in 1945, which is that, you know, we talked a lot about social democracy in the 1930s and extending the franchise, but, you know, we're, we're going to fight the Soviets. And, and the Soviets are an existential threat, just like the Nazis were. The Soviets are a gigantic state. They're, you know, present an alternative ideology. They, in 1949, get nuclear weapons. And before that, they have tons of people um, stationed in Europe and what becomes the Eastern Bloc. So the deal that the American state made with the American public is, listen, we're going to tamp down democracy for a little bit. We're going to have the National Security Council. A foreign policy-making power is going to be you know, centered in the executive branch. Congress, which according to the Constitution is supposed to declare war, is not going to actually declare war anymore. And in fact, you know, we're never going to declare war again. The United States last declared war in 1942. Um, so the, the deal that the American state makes with the public is like, listen, you guys aren't going to you're not going to make the most important decisions in terms of foreign policy and what the United States is going to be in the world, the global empire. But, you know, one day when the Soviets actually end, then things will return to you. I think that a lot of people saying that didn't think they would ever end. Uh, I think a lot of people thought that the Soviet Union was basically going to continue to the, exist with the United States, which they were very happy about because it provided a reason for being for this American state. But, you know, horror upon horrors, the Soviet Union actually does collapse for a variety of reasons, both internal and external. Between 1989 and 1991, the communist project collapses. Um, the, the, the dream of communism uh, is ended definitively, and you have the declaration of the end of history. Nonetheless, what we saw in the 1990s was that that giving back of power to the American public that was initially promised in the middle of the 1940s never happened, right? So that was supposed to happen. The, the, according to the deal that was made by the demos with the state, once the existential threat went away, you were going to begin making decisions. But instead, you have this, you know, this grand uh, attempt, like like Matt said, for George H.W. Bush to create a new world order. You have this turn to the United States being the global policeman, basically ending Holocausts before they end up. Uh, but while this is happening, there's this increasing recognition, I think, by the coming generation that's coming up that is more plastic in a sense that hasn't been, you know, totally, totally ideologically contaminated by by their lived experiences. The generation coming up, the people who made movies like Office Space and Fight Club are becoming much more skeptical about the deal that they supposedly made with the American state. And they're beginning to realize that they don't have the power that they were initially promised. And what 9-11 does, it, it makes sure that power is never given back to them. Absolutely. That's the that's the door closing on it. And that doesn't mean no 9-11 is peaches and cream. It means that a the aperture is wider. It means that the coming crisis that are going to define American life are going to have a wider set of possible answers to, which means people might be able to, using this new internet, compare notes along their lived experiences and understand, hey, you know, it turns out the way we're getting fucked over is by uh, money. It's not really any of these boogeymen that we've been put up around here. It's 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 our bosses, and that 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 all the power we're alienated from is the power of bosses exemplified. Fuck, maybe we should do something about that. And given technol uh, the the increased democratization of technology, maybe they could have made something of it. But nine eleven ensured that everyone coming of uh, age in the real crisis point, like the point when. Oh, all of our temporary uh, boosters to the economy, all our little bubbles and and uh, real estate scams, they're all collapsing. The big MLM that we did after uh, 1980 is now collapsing. Shit. Uh, they're literally going to now live in a reduced social contract that they did not assign, that they didn't sign up for, that they did not accede to. How the hell are they going to fucking process that? And because they're now looking, we're all out now looking through the lens of this paranoid traumatized world of seeking an enemy to destroy uh it means that we have to turn inward and so of course politics since obama has increasingly been pivoted towards this uh this internal enemy that we must uh, try to use the state to the capacity we can to defend ourselves from and it's also, if we think about it from this hyper-structural level, it provides an explanation as to why Obama so quickly institutionalized this sort of ad hocracy that George W. Bush created in, in the global war on terror. And essentially, he just 
basically made this a permanent feature of American imperial behavior, and most uh, represented most recently by the fact that even though Biden pulled out of Afghanistan, he said in no uncertain terms in a speech he gave right after that the global war on terror is going to remain, and what we're doing is we're removing people so we could have this continuing structure to basically recirculate money between America's defense contractors and mercenaries. And between uh, the war that Bush pursued and the war Obama pursued, you can really see the way that there is division within the ruling elite as to how exactly to go about these things, these things that they have to do. Like, they have to impose this war on terror, but they can argue about how to go about it. The, the Bush years were a imperial hubristic overreach by an ideologically coherent minority of bureaucrats and political figures around the neoconservative wing uh, of the Republican Party who were at all the crucial dis- uh, decision-making points and believed after having witnessed American power slay the Soviet Union and then reorder the globe, fight off nationalist and illiberal threats from all over the world, internally and externally, and then they rightly thought, well, where, where, how fast does this baby go? Well, we've never taken it to fourth gear. Before we accede to a global decline of American power, how about we just see what happens when you press this button? And they pursued that policy, which was, fuck Invisible Empire, we're going to plant our military machine at the heart of the global reserve of oil, which undergirds the global monetary system more than anything. We got rid of it. Dollars after the 70s went from being backed by gold to being backed by oil. And you're literally going to redefine the political economy of the Middle East from the barrel of a gun. They tried it. They bungled it because they were limited in their... There are known unknowns, you see. And then there are the unknown unknowns. And those fucked them. Then in the aftermath of that, Obama is able to evaluate the wreckage and come to the conclusion, okay, we can't do that. We can't plant the flag anymore. It's not viable. But we now have this structure of almost infinite international power in the form of this skeletal techno drone war and special forces war where we can maintain our military expenditures around things like the Afghanistan occupation and then keep them viable by trimming the grass basically with a fucking technologically abstracted military that involves very little to zero American soldiers involvement limiting the amount of domestic blowback caused by it and also making it easier to do and making it so that you can do it basically anywhere that there is insufficient power to stop you. So the Horn of Africa, Western Africa, the Middle East, and Central Asia are just open season for this new regime. And although he dabbled in undermining Assad and trying to overthrow Syria, it was always with the understanding that it was going to have to be on the cheap. And then when the question of are we going to go in with both feet was presented to him, he said no, because this was an alternative vision of how to go about this new fully determined American imperium. And he is saying instead of big noisy invasions, which we know are too costly, small, cool, technological interventions. And then what Trump did was essentially institutionalize that even more and just do it more and worse. You know, so what Trump did was he did more drone strikes, he did more special forces, and now this is precisely what Biden is institutionalizing. The problem for uh, the political class, the, the ones who are trying to steer the ship, is that while they're doing this, while they're extending out past the death of uh, the imperial dream of the neoconservatives into this eternal uh, war on terror, uh, the political ground underneath their feet domestically is, is giving away because conditions continue to deteriorate. In the aftermath of the OA crash, you have a new social order uh, that uh, has immiserated and precariatize people who until this point in American history have essentially never felt any sort of material precarity that just absolutely traumatizes their faith in any of the governing institutions that these people represent. And it also search makes their search for who to blame for their terror, much more local domestic and intimate because now they're not scared of themselves. Maybe getting an anthrax letter or maybe, Oh, they're at Disneyland and they get shot by a guy still stuff that even though it's more magnified in your head than it should be still is not a daily presently present, uh, uh, terror. These enemies domestically are robbing you of your ability to sustain yourself. And you can imagine that to be robbing you of your fucking life. And that means that that machine we're building to trim the hedges elsewhere is 
inevitably now at the final crisis point coming inward. But I, I think you're right. The quality is different, but one could see how the cast of mind is the same. And that's a cast of mind that's initially engendered by 9-11 as this crucial hinge point. And I think you see it across the political spectrum. You see it on, on the right with this nonsense about critical race theory. You see it in the center with you know pretending that Trump is a fascist who's just about to enact Article 98 to overtake the entire, uh, the, the entire political system. And you see it on the left with some people also you know identifying January 6th as an insurrection that threatened the republic or trump as you know someone who who's in any way analogous to hitler but also in this sort of internecine battles that basically define left-wing politics online which is still again reflective of this larger thing we were saying where 9-11 closed the aperture of actual democratic participation so you see a bunch of these pathologies coming together to uh, essentially embody how the downwardly mobile professional managerial class uh, interacts within itself online. Yeah. We are now at the end stage where the only thing left to do is to root for the state to annihilate your enemies. And the state is going to be annihilating a lot of people over time in order to bang them into shape to accept this new reality that's going to only continue to deteriorate. Uh, But the, the aperture of politics will exist for whoever is in power psychically, whoever imagines themselves in power, whoever is rooting for one team, gets to psychically p- get pleasure from all of the misery that is being uh, inflicted on people they don't like. And all the misery that is inflicted on people they like, that anger is transferred onto the people they don't like. Like The state is doing this horrible stuff to people I like, but that's only happening because of them. And that is how both sides view the crisis of American capitalism that we're currently living through and that is absent completely from real, the political discussion. Bernie Sanders tried to bring it back in, and he got way farther than you would have thought a few years earlier, but the, the material base to, to generate support for him was gone. The attention that the people who needed to hear him paid to politics was gone because they'd lived a whole adult life to see politics lie to them. They probably believed in Obama, and they were taught over eight years that they were fucking idiots for having believed in him. So when Bernie comes along, he's going to get some young people, some idealistic people, but the older people, even if they've had nothing but shit, and even if they agree with Bernie completely, they just don't care. Because what is politics to them but a show? And it's that's what it is for all of us. The only difference is some of us are more psychically invested in it. And that is why my alternative to, to my 9-11 would involve, say, the, the terror attack is thwarted. And it becomes newspaper headlines, but, you know, hijackers stopped from doing this thing. And it becomes a story for a while. It's like, holy shit. But it gets totally overwhelmed in the newspapers. Meanwhile, you know, everybody who failed to do the 9-11 is working hard to do 9-11-2. They're in the studio mixing 9-11-2 the second that doesn't work. But that takes a while. And... In the meantime, the American political scene is defined by uh, Enron. The connections between Enron and the Bush administration, which were pretty eyebrow-raising. Bush flew in the Enron airplane during the 2000 campaign. He had Ken Lay on his shortlist for energy secretary. This kind of stuff was, before 9-11, people were looking for anything to care about. The fucking That was the summer of the Sharks and Chandra Levy, like... People were just manic for anything to care about because there was no real defining issue. That could have been it. This reality of, oh, all of these corporate houses of cards that we put together over the last uh, 20 years telling you, no, we're really building an economy. They're all fucking, they're all uh, collapsing. They were all hollow the whole time. And then you have uh, perhaps a 08 election where Bernie Sanders is the nominee. And that language of resistance to capitalism has got a voice at a moment when downwardly mobile middle class people who are experiencing this abrupt decline in their standard of living and the prospects of their families is listening to politics enough to pick someone they're rooting for. Some of them give them money, but others of them vote for them. And then you have a possibility where Bernie could be that FDR 2.0 figure that he was trying to be, but that tragically he was just too late for because 9-11 just drove a dagger into that, that way of doing politics. 
And I think that's probably one of the most critical things that 9-11 does. If you imagine that it never happened, I think the uh, 07 to 09 crisis is read differently. And there's a lot of resources available to the reaction that aren't otherwise available. So let's say, you know, the crisis happened relatively in the same way. I don't think you necessarily have things like the Tea Party, which are really trading on a decade of extreme patriotism. And probably a lot of the social connections upon which the original Tea Party was made were formed in sort of these 9-11 things. You don't have Benghazi, you don't have ISIS, right, which essentially serve as distractions from the political economic questions that that otherwise might have been asked between 2008 and 2015, where Trump sort of like randomly, you know, in in the air because he's such, you know, he really has his finger to the wind, is able to see what's going on as sort of this anger and this disillusionment brought about not only by the crash, but also the war on terror. So I think you have a lot of different things happening there. But one thing that I, I want to end on that we didn't discuss, we talked a little bit about in the 1990s how culture changed. And I mean, there's been a lot of discussion about how 9-11 changed culture. You know, you get you know, 24 in the first season, the bad guy's a Balkan. Later on, he's, you know, uh, Muslims of various stripes. You get all the torture debates. You get uh, the shield, all these other reactions to 9-11, arrested development. Um, but one thing that I was just want to hear your thoughts on, because I think it's interesting, especially because you've thought so much about Avatar. Um I wonder if you can maybe think about, you know, Zero Dark Thirty and Avatar and Dialogue, especially because they were made by James Cameron and Catherine Bigelow, people who used to be married to each other, and who in these two movies, in in a real way, um, reflect the different American strands and approaches to the world. I think in Cameron, as you, you've gestured toward, it's really a reflection of the peace movement, you know, of the 19, that was annihilated by World War II, which was really powerful before World War II. You know, there were millions of people in the 20s and 30s United States who really advocated in favor of international peace and were really anti-imperialist. And these were mainstream people across the right and the left. And that sort of idea is embodied in Avatar. And we'll see how it's, you know, embodied or not in later iterations, but it's really reflected that. But on the other hand, Bigelow, uh, her movies, uh, The Hurt Locker and Zero Dark Thirty, both basically embody the sort of hypo-jingoistic, romantic, uh, war is the place where men are truly made men, and and it's the place where you find meaning, which defined the first decade of culture after 9-11. So I was thinking if you could maybe just reflect a little bit of of, of how these movies relate to what was happening in 9-11 culture, and given that they were made by people who had an incredible personal connection at one point to each other. It is funny because... Hurt Locker and Avatar came out the same year. They competed for the Best Picture Oscar. And Hurt Locker is about a bomb diffuser in occupied Iraq. And so the good guy, the, the, the main character, is this member of this military occupation. And then James Cameron's Avatar flips it so that the stand-in for the American military are doing 9-11 instead of being the, the victims of this uh, thing. And that's like the fundamental propaganda that's going to power all that post 9-11 content is because it takes that for granted. It takes the positionality for granted that we were harmed uniquely, even though compared to what the United States does everywhere in the world, it, it was a fucking shaving nick. And it, of course, it's impossible to imagine us responding to it any other way culturally because we were Americans. We had been conditioned to that point. So, yeah, there's no way that 9-11 gets spun away from the jingoistic nightmare it became. But James Cameron is like this voice saying, like, what if we had responded to this differently? What if we had taken a different position? And, 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 and his art is like trying to reflect that parallel world. And I think what's also really interesting is that Zero Dark Thirty, in particular, when you when you relate that to dialogue, Zero Dark Thirty is all about analysis, right? It's literally about analyzing documents in order to get what you want, where Avatar is all about experience, right? Famously, people wanted to stay forever in the, the magical land, the name, what's the name I forget? And Pandora. And it was very experiential. So it's also very different approaches to art, where you have one focusing on the emotion emotional lived experience of what it might feel like to be at the heart of uh, on the wrong side of empire and another one basically using games of logic and analysis to justify that empire yeah the, the point of view is always from the imperial center in all of the post 9-11 content that perpetuates the perspective because it warps 
everything. It warps the risk matrix. It overemphasizes risks to the self because the self is identified with this imperial point of view. And it downgrades other experiences. And, and it, it refuses any emotion other than the emotions associated with this war, this fear of a threat, as opposed to Avatar trying to make you live existence from the other side. But that perspective of like being the person having your home destroyed is is alien, literally to to the point of view of the post nine eleven stuff like uh, Zerdak Turley. And so the one actually, I thought of something that I want to talk about for a second. So I, I'm sure when you remember when nine eleven happened, and particularly after the invasion of Iraq, everyone was saying that you know there'd be a lot of good art. I think that the the analogy was made to Vietnam that Vietnam you know birthed rock and roll and gave us you know. Crosby, uh, uh, Stills, Nash and Young, and all these various things, but that didn't happen. So why do you think that? It's an interesting question that we never got like great anti-war and terror art. Was everyone just in, in, embedded in the project in a way that they weren't in Vietnam because they might have been drafted in Vietnam and that was not a, a, a oper- uh, that was not a possibility during nine eleven? Like the bourgeoisie that creates art wasn't nearly as effective, so you don't get the art. But I think it's a pretty interesting question. I think that's got a lot to do with it. There's, like I said, there's a, vo- a remove. You are never going to be the victim uh, of empire the way that, yes, uh, somebody you're invading can be, but so can some poor schmuck who gets drafted to do the dirty work. And the war on terror, I think not only the danger of what it would mean to be a troop is not felt by the people making any of the work, so there's that sort of disdain there, that level of remove, but also I think that most people making Iraq war, Afghanistan war art at a fundamental level believe in the project, which is not true of the people who made the Vietnam films because they were against the war, the concept of a war in Southeast Asia, and they were willing to end it on any terms. I don't think most middle-class filmmakers and studio producers would be comfortable with the idea of just stopping fighting the war on terror. Now, they might say, you know, I'd love to, but those Republicans, but they cannot fathom. Maybe beyond that, they can't even fathom not having it there. It's not an option, whereas Vietnam was felt, it felt optional, and therefore it felt like an option that we could stop pursuing, but I don't think that they feel that way. I feel like they think it is a fixed feature of American geopolitics, and so it has that sort of wistful fatalism at it. It can't have the passion uh, and the outrage. And I think that's a good place to end. Probably one of the biggest um, effects or what 9-11 showed and why it's a real hinge point is that it showed that Americans would be just fine with their empire if they weren't personally affected by it. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you enjoyed Hinge Points. <laughs>